Hi, this is Dhanaraj Thakur from the Center for Democracy and Technology, and this is Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today is episode 285 for August 15th, 2022. And we've got an interview for you today. We're bringing back Donarash Takur, who was on our show last December, uh, when we spoke about law enforcement agencies using companies like Google and Facebook to get your information that would otherwise have required a warrant or a subpoena, basically circumventing the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, if you want to go back and check that out, there's a link in the show notes. But today we're going to be talking about uh, content moderation which is kind of the new legislative euphemism for, well, it can be used for censorship, but also breaking the privacy technologies like end-to-end encryption. So uh, we'll be getting to that in just a second. Um, As you listen to this, I am on my way home from DEF CON 30. I'm recording it before I go, so I have no idea what happened while I was there. But you will be finding out next week, I'm sure, uh, in the new show, and I'll tell you all that happened to DEF CON, and who knows what fun snippets or whatever I might be bringing back. I've, I've got no clue at this point. A couple quick things before we start. You should be noticing the rebranding. Uh, I, I have changed the artwork for the podcast. Uh, you know, your podcast app may take a little while before it figures that out and updates its image, but uh, you'll be seeing that. You'll start seeing it elsewhere as well. It turns out I've got a lot of places where I use that branding, the old blue dragon branding uh, from my uh, from my book cover. So anyway, it's slowly but surely you'll be seeing all the changeover from the old kind of dark blue to the new brighter orange and red kind of look uh, around the new logo. So you'll be seeing those things coming uh, over time in the next few weeks, probably. I'm looking to do a new mailbag segment, perhaps. So stay tuned after the after the interview. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But for now, let's get to our interview with Donarash Talkwar. Dadarash Thakur is Research Director at the Center for Democracy and Technology, where he leads research that advances human rights and civil liberties online. Welcome back to the show, Dadarash. Thank you for having me again, Kerry. This is great to be back. Well, I ran across a paper that you guys, you and some colleagues at uh, CDT just published called uh, Outside Looking In Approaches to Content Moderation in End-to-End Encrypted Systems. And, um, you know, with the scary new proposal coming out of the EU right now, I thought it would be a good time to bring you back and talk about some of these issues. Content moderation is the buzzword of the day. So, uh, you know, we've we've talked about the crypto wars on this show before, you know, back in the 90s and the going dark problem that kind of surfaced when the FBI director said something back in 2014, you know, a little more recent years. But in your paper, you say that there's a new kind of focus by lawmakers, and it's around curbing the sharing of illicit materials and bad online behavior, aka content moderation. So, um, what is driving this shift in focus? Is it uh, is a politically smart maneuver to kind of move the move the goalposts a little bit and try to, you know, take a different angle? Or, you know, I assume there are some legitimate problems in this area right now that need to be addressed. So, you know, why is this coming to the fore now? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. Honestly, I think it's just a, a continuation in part from the kind of narratives that you mentioned earlier from crypto wars, but more, 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 most similar as a going dark issue that, that that was raised a couple of years ago. I think what's what's happening here is that you see a narrative from law enforcement, intelligent agencies and their 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 allies that encrypting communications are essentially an impediment to law enforcement. But more importantly, they argue now that 
because of the nature of engine encrypted services, it becomes harder for the service providers themselves mm. to moderate content, moderate and, and detect bad content on those services. So it's not just an, they're, they're trying to extend the argument to say it's not just a problem for us, it's also a problem for the service mm. providers. And in a way, trying to expand the kind of the, the, the actors that are, that are, um, so are you know are, are being impacted by this negatively uh it's it's to be clear it's not an argument we agree with mm. and i think from the outset we should recognize that the availability of secure end-to-end encrypted communication services is central to privacy free expression and perhaps uh, very important what a lot of people don't realize just online commerce mm-hmm. today just i think of all the transactions we do online and how we go about our daily lives from banking to shopping on all that relies on encryption. So this is critical. It's not a kind of um, tool that's used by a small set of people, right? So in your paper, you draw an important distinction between content that is illegal and content that violates the terms of service. Uh, so can you explain like the qualitative differences between those two situations and uh, like how might that play out in real life? Like how would I see that? So yeah, there are a couple of ways we could look at this. I mean, when we talk about illegal content, we're talking about relying on um, existing U.S. law to tell us what's legal or not. For example, right there is the Children's Internet Protection Act (CIPA), right, that stipulates that you know schools or libraries or others that receive um, federal funding or specific specific types of federal funding have to prevent access to uh, child pornography. For example, mm-hmm. right? So there are rules about restricting access to certain kinds of content. There are laws that are very clear that certain kinds of content are illegal. Child, child pornography or child sexual abuse material, CSAM, is one of the most obvious examples of that kind of illegal content. So the, the law is clear on what that what constitutes that kind of illegal content, CSAM in this case. All service providers have terms of service. In other words, they these these outline what kinds of content can be shared on their services and in what ways. And if a con- if put some content is in breach of that service and is, is in breach of those rules, they will outline what kinds of actions they will take to address it. Because CSAM is illegal, it will also, typically those terms of services will include illegal, uh, outline illegal content as being not, per- per- not permitted on their platform, right? However, these are private companies, and so they can also include other kinds of content which they view as not being permitted on their platform. Disinformation is uh, another neg- example of this. Disinformation by itself, this is uh, false information that's, that's spread with the intent of producing some kind of political harm or mm. something like that, by design, in other mm-hmm. words, could be deemed not, permit- not permissible on a particular platform. And that's within the right to the company, and that's within their terms of service. And I'll explain what that means. There have been cases recently of politicians posting different kinds of threatening material or violent material through political ads. The platform yeah. may take action against that because that's against their terms of service, where another platform might not, and just simply label it and say, we just want to leave this on a platform for public uh you know, for purposes of public knowledge or awareness or whatever. So different platforms will have different 
language or not. But what I'm getting at is there's certain kinds of content that's illegal, like CSAM, and everyone will be very clear it's illegal and not permitted. There are other kinds of content which are not uh, illegal per se, but platforms can um, address them in different ways depending on how they want to do. deal with that. With, and, and, and disinformation is, is one example of that. Perhaps another example is the difference between porn and, and CSAM, right? Porn is in, is in effect legal, right? Um, most, most, but most types of porn, but child porn is not, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So one of the other places that maybe an average person might run into this is if you, if you were to try to post something online that was using a clip from a movie or a clip from a song, uh, because there's a, the, the, the people that own the rights to those things do not like people sharing those online. To the point, though, where some clever uh, police officers have started playing music, like copyrighted music in the background during police actions, mm-hmm. to, to, to prevent videos of those things from being posted on YouTube, because YouTube has automatic filters that look for copyrighted material and automatically pull down videos for things like that. Right. Yeah, so that's another era when you, you're talking about um, copyright laws, which prevent the share or sharing or distribution of material, certain kinds of copyrighted material, right? YouTube does have an autom- like automatic filter to detect these kinds of content. And those kinds of illegal content, uh, which are, well, in fact, uh, those kinds of content that are you know illegal under certain copyright laws will also, again, as I mentioned, be part of the, the services, terms of service. I think most of them will want to be clear that illegal content is not allowed. And then they'll beyond that, they'll expand it to other kinds of content, which may not be illegal, but which they think is not appropriate right. on their platform. All right. So in, in your paper, you talk about different phases of the content moderation cycle. I thought it was interesting the way you broke that down. Can you give us an overview of that model? Sure. And I think it's important maybe just to quickly mention why we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, Often when we talk about content moderation, um, a particular about harmful content, abusive content, right? We may use the term content moderation to, you know, to, to address these kinds of con- bad content. But often what we're talking about is the content detection. Hmm. When we talk about different kinds of tools, filters that you just mentioned, like what YouTube does with copyrighted music, for example, they're detecting, they're using these tools to detect content, not necessarily moderate content. Moderation is a is a, actually a, a, a larger set of actions. And that's why we wanted to dis- explain this in the paper when we talk about different phases of the content mm-hmm. moderation cycle, because there's detection is just one part of it. I mean, the, one, the initial step is really def- that definition and defining what is allowed on the service. And this, come back, this comes back to your question about terms of service, where the, where the platform will say, a, B, and C is allowed, but Z is not. And that's how they lay out the rules there. So that's the first step, actually. Define, and that's part of the moderation process because now you're deciding what's allowed and what's not allowed. Mm-hmm. So you're taking actions and impacting what the user can or cannot do on their service. Then comes detection. And detection can occur in many different ways, but often in, in, given the scale of user-generated content nowadays, we're talking about automated detection prob- right. tools. We actually did a, a, a large report talking about problems and limitations of it, and I'm happy to go into that maybe later on mm. into the problems around like uh, natural language processing models right, or computer yeah. vision models. They're not perfect, but they're often, uh, I think what I'll say is that 
they often have the appearance of being very accurate. Hmm. Uh, and when they're not, and the word accurate itself is not, <laughs> is not the best term to use in this case. Right. So but, detection is that, that part of it, right? But as you say, oh, for scale, I mean, for when you're talking about the scale of Facebook, when you've got literally billions of users, there's no way humans could do that. So, I mean, so it makes sense that they at least try to, at least, you know, for a first, for a first blush, for a first crack at it to try to automate that. Well, yes, to, I agree, but I think you also need to keep humans in the loop. So there has to be a big, oh, sure. if you're going to operate at that scale, then you need to invest more in a moderation <laughs> system that yeah. includes humans and not purely, is not purely automated. And if you want to, right, if you want to run a multi-billion dollar company with billions of users, then you have to be thinking about how to protect them as well. You would think, sorry, didn't mean to diverge. Finish your model. What are the other phases? Yeah, so that, that's what happens with detection. So, so then you can get into, all right, you detect content. Now what happens? There's an evaluation phase. Let's say you detect, let's go back to a YouTube example. The model detects a clip that's been uploaded that has copyrighted content. So it alerts a possible human or maybe another system. Mm. So the evaluation is now deciding whether or not this is a mistake, whether or not this should be allowed because it falls under fair use, maybe it does not. There's an evaluation here about whether or not this is actually allowed under the terms of service. That evaluation needs enforcement. So if it's per if it's allowed, then maybe the clip can remain. If it's not, then some kind of action has to be taken. That, that could mean like um, removing the content, blocking the user, maybe something worse. It depends. And those are typically laid out in the terms of service. Ideally, you would want an appeals process as well. Mm. So if you upload, so it's going back to the YouTube example, but even further back to the idea that some police officers are playing music in the background in order to like in that inadvertently block the sharing of this uh, of the recording of the of the police officers. There could be an appeals process in place where the person points out that they were not playing the music; it was someone else, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You would hope that that's the case. Mm -hmm. In an ideal scenario, you'd want an appeals process in place. Going back to the automated problem, though, if it's purely automated, and often these systems, when with an automated system in place, there's very little explanation of why mm -hmm. a decision, uh, content was detected. What was wrong with it? It's hard to explain if it's you know uh, using a strict ML model. Then the appeals process becomes difficult, right? Because what what was the reason that you're <laughs> right. appealing for? Right. So. That that's goes back to my plug for having humans in the loop. Mm -hmm. And then finally you have the education process where I think you need to educate users about this whole system. That it's not that there are all these different elements, that there is an appeals process, that this is how the detection is being done. These are the factors that they're looking at, et cetera, et cetera. That is our kind of ideal content moderation system. Now, uh, sometimes people focus just on a detection or on the provider side, they leave out crucial pieces like the appeals part of it or mm -hmm. the education part of it, which, you know, then undermines the whole process. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on a couple of things that you brought up. First of all, with Facebook in particular, we talk about it and, and I completely agree that if you're going to make those kind of, that kind of money, you know, part of what you need to bring to the table is you need to add more people to this process to, to do a better job in moderation. And, but I wanted to bring up a point that I don't think a lot mm -hmm. of maybe Americans understand is that Facebook, my understanding, you correct me if I'm wrong, spends a lot of, well, spends the money it does spend 
on U.S. moderation, but not in foreign countries a lot of times. And in fact, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of uh, stories that I've seen where mis- and disinformation campaigns have been really effective in countries outside the U.S., uh, because Facebook is basically investing no resources in those countries to do the same kind of human moderation. Is that true? I think it is true to, to some extent, yeah. The, the Most of it investment from Facebook, I think, is on, like, when it comes to human moderators and having human reviewers, it is focused on the U.S. and I think the EU as well. Hmm. So, so this leads to two problems, right? There's this lack of humans in the loop when it comes to content that covers like these other non-English, non-European languages, which can lead to a lot of problems. There's been a lot of media reports about what happened in Myanmar or what mm-hmm. is happening now in Myanmar and the content that's posted using Burmese and a lack of moderation around that content, like content that involves calls to incite, inciting violence right. and other things that would be not allowed on the Facebook's um, terms of service. One problem that emer- that's emerging here, which which actually CDT is very much interested in understanding more, is given the lack of human investment in human moderators, there is in in parallel investments in uh, machine learning tools to to come up with like uh, content detection systems that um, rely on limited data. So, in other words, whereas English content in English, there's a lot of content. In fact, most of mm. the content on the, on the internet is in English. So there's a lot of data then to train models. But when it comes to like non-English content or non-European language content, there's less data. So there are models that are being developed, you know, like few-shot learning models and so on, that attempt to make predictions based on limited data, which sounds problematic to us because instead of investing in humans, you're trying to double down on the automated process right. with l- even less data. I think we need to better understand the implications of that. Well, I, as a technologist, I, I'm, I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I think is an Uber, you know, <laughs> alpha technologist. I think they like to believe that technology can solve the problem. So, uh, you know, investing more in automating uh, this stuff, I think is just kind of their natural go-to you know, knee-jerk response to any problem. So, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise yeah. me that they take that methodology. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, may understand the liability uh, for people who are actually sharing illegal material, for example. But another thorny issue today, certainly in the U.S., is the liability for the services and systems involved in transferring and hosting that material. How, how does that break down in the U.S.? Yeah, so under U.S. law, there are strict reporting requirements for certain kinds of illegal content. And if we go back to the case of child sexual abuse material, there are service providers that are legally required to report when they come across that kind of content on their platforms. Uh, they can report this to NICMIC, which is um, the National Center for uh, Missing and Exploited Children which then keeps track of the, these different kinds of reports and so on. But the key point is that there, there's a legal requirement for them to do this once they come across this. Right. And if they do not, there are penalties which they can incur for, for, for not reporting this. This actually applies to not just the service trials, but others as well. That, so Because in effect, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about penalizing people that share this, but also penalizing people that may be involved in hosting or transferring content of this nature. 
I mean, we've got, I think that was Section 230, right? There, We've got some laws that were put in place specifically to kind of give, this is the classic, you know, thing, the analogy you always hear is uh, some crime was committed in, a, in an apartment building. You know, can you hold the landlord accountable in any way, right? Or is it just the people involved that actually did the, the crime? And a, a lot of content providers basically say, look, we, we can't do what we do. We can't police everything we do. We can't we can't be held responsible for everything that happens on our platform. So we struck some sort of compromise there, right? Where uh, you, as long if you're notified about it or you're, or if you're aware of it, then you need to try to do something about it, but you're not always held responsible, something like that, right? I think there's two different things, Amber. So, so 230 provides a kind of a liability shield for providers to protect them from content that their users are harmful or other kind of illegal content that their users might post on their services, right? So they're not viewed as the person owning that content or posting that content. And when, then what that does then is allows people, it, it, it actually increases free expression, right? Because then the providers are not being overly, right. uh, at, at, you know, censoring content. Right. But when it comes to certain illegal content, like I was talking about with CSAM, they mm-hmm. still have to, do that reporting function, regardless of 230. So 230 does not um, mean that they cannot, they don't need to report it. They still need to report it. They just won't be uh, under 230. They won't be viewed as, as you know, sharing that content or, or posting that content. But that comes down to the actual user, uh, which is illegal, by the way. And so they, mm. by reporting it, uh, you know, the authorities will take action against that user. There, that user is not protected in any way from because of 230 and other kind of right. law. Once you share a CSAM anywhere, it's illegal and so and, uh, actions will be taken sure, against I mean, That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we, we've talked about some of these systems for policing infringing and illegal material, but how do we have any data or statistics on how effective these things are uh, in terms of, I don't know, percentages, statistics about how good they are at finding truly illicit material? Are they over zealous or, or underzealous like I, a classic case is somebody posts a, a famous piece of art that happens to show a naked body right and that is dubbed pornography and there's there's been a lot of cases around that men's nipples being called out as being female nipples and of course you can't have the one but you can't have the other you know dumb things like that so you know when we look at things like manual versus automated and maybe proactive versus reactive do we have any idea how effective the current tools are at doing those things yeah it's a it's a tough one i mean right now i think most platforms will rely on some form of automated content detection system so that will mean like using a variety of different machine learning tools to detect content that's already known like images they already know about like so so in those cases they'll use some kind of hashing technique to compare mm-hmm. an image that's been uploaded by a user to something that's already known or they use some kind of predictive algorithm to, to guess whether or not this image or video or text that someone has uploaded is similar to something that they do not want on their platform. I think, I mean, it's hard to say how effective these things are, but the platforms will tell you that they are very f- effective given the huge amount of content, the billions of pieces of content that are uploaded every day. There are some key limitations with this though, which is what I had hinted at earlier. You just mentioned the sometimes the algorithms confuse what is actual nudity and what, what's not. Nudity is a good example of con- lack of context. Most of these tools cannot understand context. That's mm. a 
really uh, essentially a human function. Right. And so they'll miss that. Even if it's a picture of a naked person, it could be artistic, it could be journalistic, mm-hmm. etc., and not not pornographic. So there's problems there. There's problems around people trying to fool the systems, and there's lots of examples of uh, you doctoring images to fool detection. There is a data quality problem, um, and there's a lot of lots of research that show that you know lots uh, when it comes to facial recognition systems, they're better at identifying like white men as opposed to other categories mm-hmm. of people. So there's lots of problems with them, and I think those problems are often most felt by minority groups, groups that are not actually uh, often represented in these data sets. So that's something to keep in mind. I think when we come back to like end-to-end encrypted services, I think what's what's happening there or what's needed is a combination of these proactive, reactive tools, right? Set of tools. Proactive meaning that you can use metadata analysis as one way to kind of identify potentially bad content without looking at the content itself mm. since that's encrypted mm-hmm. and reactive you can use user reporting there are lots of user reporting examples of user reporting where people come across bad content harmful content and they report it and so you know combining that uh, those are some of the methods you can use and and still maintain the privacy uh, that's you know it's part of encryption all right so here's a tough question when and how does moderation become censorship and i that is a huge issue here in the United States. I'm sure it does elsewhere too, but it, it certainly in the recent political atmosphere, it has been a massive issue on both sides of the aisle here in the United States. Yeah. So how do we define objectively what the line is between moderation and, and, and censorship? And, you know, is it possibly to clearly and concisely define the behavior and content that we say are impermissible, impermissible, uh, or is it more like the classic, the old pornography quote? I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. It is a tough question. <laughs> I think it, it's it's going to be very difficult to to draw that clear line because content and the way content is packaged is evolving, right? I mean, once you, there was a time when you had simple images, now you have memes, and now you have GIFs and and different variations of it. And then there's a context part of it. Mm. So sometimes you might just have a simple image and you may say, okay, this image is not good. But if it's presented in a particular context with a particular framing, it might actually not be, might be satirical. It might be uh, trying to make fun of another, someone else's viewpoints, right? So I'll go back to this recent example of a, a, a political ad from a, a Republican that was calling for like or potentially inciting violence against Republicans in name only, mm-hmm. which was removed from Facebook, but kept on Twitter for public awareness um, or public knowledge. And people had retweeted that in a way of documenting what they're doing, of what that person was doing, but not really not themselves promoting violence. So what's 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 the free speech line here? What's the censorship right. line? Like what what what's valid censorship and what's not? So it's difficult to say, especially when someone is like retweeting something that's bad, like a just like right. a political ad. Right. I I really think it's you know, it's some in some cases it is comes comes down to that case by case basis, and that makes it very difficult because of the scale problem. Mm-hmm. But again, I go back to the argument, if you want to work at that scale, then, you know, you just need to be investing more in, in this. So I guess the short answer is that I don't think you should have a clear, bright line. 
there's some flexibility required because of the shifting nature of the way content is is packaged as well as the context issue and then that will mean that you know you need to evaluate things case by on a case by case basis sometimes it will it, it will require remove, removal or blocking the content and sometimes not so well the other issue here is that really since these are all private companies and this that is kind of up for debate some people call them the public town square but they're really not i mean these are private companies with private terms of right. service mm-hmm. who have a lot of users but certainly i think it could be legally argued that they have the right to say yes or no to any content that is hosted on their system where a lot of people would say well no that's censorship you can't you i have the right to free speech but yeah not on a private system and, and right. look, no, look no further than 4chan and 8chan and 8coon and some of those other ones that have kind of evolved over the years because they keep getting shut down mm-hmm. uh for some really horrific content but yet i mean under pure f- first amendment free speech rights is not illegal it's just up to whether right. or not the 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 platform allows it so there's illegal and then there's terms of services that we were talking about before so, mm-hmm. so what's your take on that aspect of this I mean, it, you're right. It is a private entity with their own terms of service, so they're free to. It's their their First Amendment right to decide what content is on their platform or not. It's not a the First Amendment. You know, people maybe sometimes mistakenly say that it's their First Amendment right to say whatever they want on Facebook. That's not the case because First Amendment is a government interference, right? So. So it really is up to the platforms, and this is why they have to be very clear, I think, in their terms of service, in terms of what they allow, what they do not allow, and what kinds of actions they will take for different kinds of content. So people will know and understand what, what's happening in this, what's going to happen on this platform. Um, but it, it is really up to the platform. I think, so, so, so what that means then is that we'll lean towards um, promoting free speech on these platforms and uh, will lean towards deferring to the provider to decide what kind of content stays up or not. What I would say, though, is that even with that you know, uh, concession and that, per- that kind of environment, platforms should think about the disparate impact on different kinds of communities when it comes to the content that they will allow. So what I'm getting at is that the ability to to access free speech is not equal for everyone. Mm. Some groups are going to be kind of impacted negatively or disproportionately negatively than others. So there's something that platforms need to consider. So when it comes to like hate speech or, or racist speech, there have been examples of, on Instagram, I remember NCB had a, NBC had a report on how uh, accounts that were owned or were run by black users were more likely to be removed because of mm. what the algorithms are perceiving as mm. inappropriate content compared to accounts by other users. So, so, so in general, yes, I'd lean towards promoting more free speech, but platforms should still consider these other problems as well. Okay, so let, let's circle back to really where we wanted to go with a lot of this conversation, and that has to mm-hmm. do with the illegal content and then the notion of end-to-end encryption. So let's let's first of all talk about what that means because that term end-to-end encryption I've, I've seen thrown around quite loosely and some by some companies who say they have it and they turn out they don't for example i right. think zoom back in the day claimed they had end-to-end encryption when, when they first started back in COVID, it was things were really getting hot and heavy and they fixed it to their credit but they yeah. did it <laughs> they didn't really follow what most 
privacy experts would agree is end-to-end encryption. So, okay, so how does, for instance, how does the Center for Democracy and Technology define the term end-to-end encryption? And then how does that manifest in our regular daily lives? As average Joe people, you know, why is that important to me? So an end-to-end encryption system, you know, or a service or an app is going to be end-to-end encrypted only if you have to understand, I'll just step back a bit, actually, which mm-hmm. encryption involves access to keys that will allow a, a user, an authorized user, to encrypt or decrypt the data, right? Mm-hmm. By encrypting the data, you mean it means that no one else will have access to that data unless they have the keys to decrypt it. Mm-hmm. And that's how encryption would work. I mean, in, in a very simple, right. a, a very simple description of it. What end-to-end encryption means now is that the keys used to encrypt and decrypt the data are known only to the sender and authorized recipients of the message of or, or the data. So no one else, no third party, no one else. So if you and I have an encrypted, end-to-end encrypted conversation, only you and I have will have the keys to encrypt and decrypt that data. No one else, no one in the service provider, no third party, none of our friends, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And that's in essence what having an end-to-end encrypted system means. It's end-to-end, as in sender and receiver are the only only parties to the to the conversation. Okay. And so that's crucial because now you introduce a degree of privacy to the conversation and as well as security in the sense that no one else can access the conversation. We can be confident that no one else besides us will have access to the conversation unless we, of course, share it with someone else. That's a different story. Right. So there's a when when we talk about end-to-end encryption, then uh, with a service provider, let's say like WhatsApp or Signal or something like that, what it means is that you and I can be confident that no one else, including a service provider, including WhatsApp or Signal, can access our conversation. So we can be confident that we can trust the system that no third party can access it. Now, one thing I just want to make clear is that the trust between me and you is a different issue. Mm. I trust you not to share it. <laughs> you may share whatever. That's right. that's on me. But right. that is separate from our trust in the system that no one else can um, access the message. And no, having no one else access that message is essentially what makes a you know end-to-end encrypted system work. Now, why is that important? Because of the privacy, there's a security guarantee guarantee as well. It means then it can enable us having private conversations. Privacy is very important for communication generally, right? This is not a new concept, by the way. This goes back to since humans started speaking and communicating. Mm-hmm. Privacy has been always been important. But what's particularly crucial today, and I mentioned this earlier, is, is commerce. Online transactions today rely on encryption. Having internet computer services promote that. Um, we're talking about banking, online shopping, all kinds of different transactions that are online. One other corollary to this that, that is often missed, I think, is there's the content of the message, but then, as you alluded to earlier, there's also the metadata around the message. And that could be two very different things. And uh, as often mm-hmm. as the often is the case with end-to-end encryption is there still is metadata information about that conversation that can still be viewed by third parties, including, you know, the IP addresses potentially of the, of the two endpoints, which usually allows me to identify them in, in some way, usually, you know, unless they're taking pains to, uh, you know, to mask their IP, the, the time of day, how long the communication was, how much data was exchanged. That's all metadata. And that all could st- mm-hmm. still be extremely telling, right? Yeah. 
So the service provider can have access to the metadata depending on whether or not they're actually collecting this. Mm-hmm. So some services like WhatsApp will tell you that they are collecting the metadata or some metadata there. And they're doing that to, uh, in the case of detect, in, in, in they say in the case of detecting like bad content. In fact, they, they've shown in, in different kinds of reports how they use different kinds of machine learning tools on metadata to predict or identify like harmful content. Hmm. And you, like, as you said, metadata there would involve like the time a message was sent, how big was the message, but it could also include, um, in the case of WhatsApp, profile pics. So profile pics are hmm. not encrypted. Hmm. And as we mentioned report, or, or I think in WhatsApp's own reports, some people actually use abusive images as part of their profile pics. <laughs> So then that kind of uh. helps WhatsApp <laughs> to figure out what's going on. So so there's things like that. But so yes, metadata can be useful in that way. Um, there are other platforms like Signal, which does not collect any metadata. So, you know, again, it just depends on what the service is doing. So metadata can be helpful. In fact, we argue this in the report. It can be helpful in detecting harmful content. But there we have to be careful because I think as you're alluding to, it can reveal a lot about people and invade, can invade their privacy. So we have, there has to be limits on what metadata has been collected. I think the ideal situation is where any kind of metadata analysis is done on the user's device. Hmm. So they're receiving a message. That message may include some metadata. The, 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 the app itself has a, you know algorithm that assesses that and then pro- provides some advice to the user on how to act. You know, maybe this is harmful content or something. Right. That excludes the service provider. So the less the less you have third parties involved, the better it is, I think. Well, and that's Apple had their controversial CSAM scanning proposal that came out last fall that they eventually backed off of parts of it. The CSAM part particularly they didn't. They tried to do it right. They tried to keep it all on the device. They tried to maintain privacy while still doing scanning. I applaud the effort, even though if I don't think it was the right solution. But to that point, so this is this is where it all comes together because now we have these two conflicting things. We have laws around what is legal to be shared, and certainly CSAM material is not, and it's abhorrent, and we right. need to stop it. But now we have free speech and end encryption, and and these companies are being asked to to figure this out somehow. And we've got there've been several laws in the U.S. and the EU and uh, Australia and others that have tried to fix this problem by saying, okay, you, you guys got to do this. You, and, and what it comes down to, I think, is a lot of these cases, they want to end up breaking end-to-end encryption to get this done. So let's talk about some of the some of these proposals. Um, there's been like the Earn It Act, and let's talk about this new one from the EU. What are their key provisions, and what does it mean for privacy? Yeah, so a lot of them are problematic. I'll start off by saying that. Mm. Earnit in particular. So the Earnit Act has been around for a few years. It recently surfaced again earlier this year, or resurfaced, I should say. Uh, what Earnit does is that it essentially re- you know, removes the, the liability shield that Section 230 of the mm. Communication Decency Act provides to, for platforms. It removes that shield with regard to... Um, State um, state laws that prohibit the distribution of, of CSAM. So what that means is, 
states then will be free to impose any kind of liability standard that they pre, you know, prefer on the platforms. So now the platforms will be subject to these kinds of liability standards depending on the various states uh, around the country, right? And so there could, there could be a range of different standards here, but the, the overall impact is that the liability shield is no longer applicable. The outcome of this could be similar to what happened with FOSTA-SESTA. So FOSTA-SESTA was a different law passed in 2018, signed into law in 2018, which was meant to, according to the, 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 the drafters of the law, to prevent, to address sex, sex trafficking, right? In that case, it also kind of carved out a section of Section 230, the, the liability shield, so that the, the section, the immunity, the, the liability shield no longer applied to uh, content that was related to like um, sex trafficking, mm. right? So they wanted to, I, the idea being that the platforms could, could no longer, should no longer tolerate that kind of content on their services. Of course, what happened, it had a Im negative impact on sex workers and many others who were, they were indirectly harmed by this because of the, 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 the kind of broad overreach of yeah. the law. The government itself, I believe, did a study on this and found that um, foster system was hardly ever used to traffic anyone for sex trafficking, mm. to prosecute anyone for right. sex trafficking. So similarly, we can see something happen with Earnit. Earnit is going to, is wants to carve out a section of the liability shield when it comes to the, the, the share and distribution of CSAM, but it may just have a significant overreach again and, in fact, make things worse, right? Well, so with the EU CSAM one in particular, all of these, one of the things that they all kind of have, or more accurately imply heavily, with in some cases without saying, is the only way for these platforms, let's say it's Apple and iMessage or Facebook and uh, and Twitter and DMs, the only way for them to to really comply with what they're being asked to do would be to break end to end encryption, and that to me that that to me that's where all this all of our conversation today comes back to. So. How do these laws try to phrase their requirements that will force these companies to basically invade all our privacy? I think, you know, there's a range of tactics here, but some of them require different kinds of filtering or different kinds of content detection tools that have to be in place so that the service provider is able to observe or detect like CSAM or the kinds of content on this on in the messages, right, on their platforms, in one way or another. And as you say, what that means in practice, then you're breaking end-to-end -end encryption. Because as we said earlier, end-to-end -end encryption has to be a restricted confidential communication between two end-to-end -to -end points, between the send and receiver. Once you ask a third, once you have a third, third party or service provider, like scanning the content or viewing the content in some way, no matter how limited, it's no longer end-to-end. -end. So there's no point in content end-to-end -end anymore. It's just any, any other communication with someone else listening in, right? And if people want to have that kind of communication and have someone else listening in, that's fine, right? That's their choice. But you can't call it end-to-end -end anymore. Uh, so that's the key thing. So this isn't what they're talking about is no longer end-to-end -end encryption. I think that's important to um, clarify. The problem is that end-to-end -end encryption is very important, as we mentioned, as we said earlier, for privacy purposes, for commercial purposes, and so on. I think then these, these proposals are misguided in the sense that they think 
that there that break in encryption is the only way to address this problem. And that's actually one thing we're arguing in the report that there are ways outside of breaking encryption that we can can be helpful in detecting harmful content. Right. Well, perfect segue. Let, let's get that. That was my yeah. next question. So, what are what are the solutions? What are you proposing? What is your counter proposal to what they are proposing? So there are two things. One is the use of metadata, which I mentioned earlier. Metadata to a limited extent, because ideally you want it being used on the user's device and limiting who has access to the metadata. But even if the third, even if the service provider has access to it, you want to make sure it's done in a in a in a limited way, in a way that that data is not shared with anyone, where the data is not being used in that to you know, aggregate um, communication across services so they can start mm -hmm. to identify people and so on. So that's one approach. And, and it, this is effective, by the way. WhatsApp has reported that they use this to metadata alone to, 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 to remove hundreds of thousands of pieces of, of content each month hmm. based, based on this approach. The second approach, as I mentioned, was, is user reporting. And this is very important because it allows, it gives users the power, users the control. It's a reactive method, yes, but it does give users the control to block, prevent, uh, and basically um, identify like bad actors within the service provider's platform and network. I think building on that, the more control we can give users. So for example, this could mean having filters on a user's device that they can you know, program to block, like say, pornographic content or abusive messages or things like that. If the service providers were able to include these kinds of tools on the app, on the app itself that the user can then use to you know, just block certain content, that could be another advancement, advance, I think, to, to help users prevent receiving this content, but it also prevents the distribution and spread of the content generally, right? So given users more of these tools preserves the privacy and security guarantees of internet encryption because if you're not getting other people involved, you're just giving them the user's control. And that, that I think, plus the reporting aspect of it, plus the metadata, it's a combination of tools, I think, which, which could be very, very effective. Uh, I think there's more work to be done. It's still, there's more work to be done in terms of developing better tools for users. Right now, you just simply have these reporting buttons, you know, uh, by themselves. And so there could be more done in terms of like these filtering tools or maybe better reporting systems, things like that. All right. So I realize this, this is a tough question. I'm not, but I think what we're basically saying uh, is that it's more important from a broader perspective, from a societal and democratic perspective to have the integrity of true end-to-end -end encryptions and true private capabilities to communicate with other people, which might allow bad people to use a neutral tool like ended encryption to do bad things. Do you agree with that paraphrasing of that? <laughs> of that? Or, or do you think, how else? Yeah, how, I, yeah, I think I wouldn't want to frame it as a kind of trade off. And I don't think that's what you're doing. But I wouldn't want people to interpret that, interpret it in that way. I think we have to, so, so I think it's also important to think about a larger societal problem around like say things like CSAM, maybe other things like disinformation or misinformation. But with illegal content in particular, law enforcement agencies have tools of, that are available to help them, right? They have their investigative tools. 
they have techniques that they've always used to track down criminals and stop the spread of, you know, of their activities while, you know, while also allowing people to go about their regular lives using legal means of communication and interacting with each other. I, I think, so I think that I don't see why internet encryption is any different from that, in mm. that majority of people can use it safe, legal way, but you can still track down the bad actors and act, you know, and prosecute them and deal with them. I think there is a kind of underappreciation, there's, there's a lack of appreciation of, of the tools that law enforcement have at their disposal, typically to address, to, you know, to address these problems. There is a case, for example, with, I believe it's called EncroChat, where in Europe, where I think it was a French police or some other European uh, police organization that was trying to uh, get at drug traffickers. Mm. Uh, but they were, they were using this encrypted kind of tool, end-to-end mm-hmm. encrypted tool. Uh, what they did was to get one of the phones from one of the people involved in the network, physically get the phone, and then join the, net, join the communication, then the group. Right. Uh, and then listening, it's kind of an old school method. Right. But I'm, I'm getting, what I'm getting at is that, you know, this is how it works. Right. And so they listened in and they, they joined the communication and they, 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 you know, they got everybody, right? Um, right. So that I mean, exists. I mean, th- yeah, this problem predates end-to-end encryption. I mean, there were, you know, there were, there were other ways to send messages that law enforcement were unable to see and for bad guys to communicate. You know, the, the classic stories, maybe this is all apocryphal maybe it's just from reading too many books and watching movies but you know where the bad the the mafia guys talk on the phone about okay pick up the lollipop at the grocery store on you know right. all these coded terms that they're using to so because the, they know they're being recorded but other ways to exchange messages and the way the cops get these guys is shoe leather the old time you know they they do stakeouts they they infiltrate groups they you know they become right. or they get confidants or get people to turn i mean there <laughs> there were law enforcement techniques around the stuff before end end encryption was a problem Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, that they just still need to appreciate those techniques and that they can still be effective. Yeah. All right. Last question before we go. So if I want to learn more about this subject, uh, I'll certainly put a link to your paper in the show notes. But if if I want to learn more about these sorts of issues and if I want to maybe get involved, uh, if I've developed an opinion or I want to develop an opinion and then I want to do something about that, what what are my best ways to educate myself and to, to be involved in this in this particular topic? That's a good question. I think, um, yeah, definitely, you know, we have published stuff on this trying to explain the issues. There are other groups like us. I know EFF has been doing, Electronic Frontier Foundation has also been doing similar work and uh, advocacy as well. Following the, these different civil society groups, I think is important. But also following what's happening in Congress in particular, because, you know, given the relevance for us here in the U.S., following what kinds of laws are being proposed and understanding, talking to Congress people or talking to like society folks who are analyzing this, but trying to understand the implications of these laws, I think is very important. And then, you know, pushing back or, or supporting where relevant the law and what it might imply for internet encrypted services. So I think, you know, being aware and then putting pressure on Congress is always helpful. Yep. The standard tried and true methods. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. I know this is a tough topic, but uh, thank you for helping explain it all to us. And uh, thanks for coming back to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Gary. It's been great. Thanks again to Don Rush for coming on the show and 
discussing a, kind of a thorny issue. It's a, it's a tricky subject. It's no real clear answer. I mean, we want to stand up and say that privacy is absolute, but just like the First Amendment is an absolute, there needs to be some cases where where we allow it to break down. And the problem is that technologically, that's as far as we could tell now, almost impossible to do without breaking and dead encryption, which has way, way too many negative repercussions to consider. So we're going to have to keep working on this and see what else we might be able to figure out. Uh, my patrons will get a little bit of bonus content. I get some extra questions from Don Raj. We talk a little bit more, a little more technical about some of the proposed solutions. We get into a little bit of that and uh, the need for transparency from social media and other companies uh, that are working with law enforcement. Now, I did mention uh, before the interview that uh, I was going to be resurrecting or I'm thinking about resurrecting the listener mailbag segment. Uh, it's always kind of fun to do. I'd like to get questions from the audience, basically. Uh, and so I, I'm going to do that again. Uh, but this time, I think I'm going to throw in some sort of incentive, like maybe, you know, I'll, I'll pick somebody at random every month from somebody who submitted a question and send them a copy of my book or something like that. Uh, we'll see. But be thinking about questions you might want to ask. And the other thing I've, I'm probably going to do this time around is if you're willing and able, I'll let you submit an audio clip of you asking the question that way you can even hear your voice on the air if you want maybe that'll be the incentive for some people as well so we'll see uh, stay tuned i'm gonna be announcing this at sometime in the next few weeks and we'll get it started and i'll tell you how to send me your questions so as i said i at this point i'm en route from vegas back to north carolina and uh, I will have a new show for you uh, next week and hopefully some fun little tidbits and maybe even some audio snippets from the con. And then the week after that, two weeks from now, should be my interview with Jeff Moss. Hopefully that will all go well. It's all scheduled at this point. So unless something happens, uh, I should have a nice uh, second interview with Jeff Moss for the big 30th anniversary of DEF CON. So uh, that should be in two weeks. Lots of other great interviews in the pipeline, so if you haven't already, subscribe so you don't miss any of this wonderfulness. If you have a moment, I would love to get some new, fresh, five-star reviews for the podcast. It's always good to have some more recent ones. But otherwise, that's going to wrap it up this week. So until next week, as always, everyone, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.